You're going to need your Bibles this morning. Uh, that's true on any Sunday. If you've never been here before, we are uh, unashamedly a Bible church. We're, we're all about that Bible. Uh, now, lots of churches, of course, claim that. Uh, lots of churches act like that. A lot of preachers act like that. Uh, but the Bible's more of like a prop or ladies, an accessory to the outfit. You know, the preachers, he's got to hold this so he looks official. Uh, but he isn't really using this. Or, or he's sort of pulling it out of context and isn't actually teaching you anything. And uh, if you're in a church like that, you could be going for years and you're never going to learn anything because they're actually not teaching anything. Uh, it's just a bunch of hoopla. Well, we, we're not doing all the hoopla, so put on your safety belt, uh, buckle up, and let's rock and roll. Book of Acts is where I need you to be in the 17th chapter. Um, as you turn to the book of Acts, as I was saying a moment ago, there are a lot of preachers who use the Bible as a prop, and part of the way you can see that they're using it as a prop is they don't give you context when they ask you to turn somewhere. Uh, in the book of Acts, you, we have an ancient historical narrative that is written by the historical figure Luke. He's a historian. He's also a physician. He's a, a scientist and an author. He has a brilliant mind, and he wrote the book of Acts to give us an origins account for the church of Jesus Christ. In the opening chapters of the book, we see the Jewish disciples of the Jewish Messiah, Yeshua, Jesus of Nazareth. And they're carrying the message of his gospel into the Middle East, and then they're carrying the message of the gospel into Africa. So as you open up the book, you're going to see these Jewish disciples carrying the message of Yeshua, Jesus, into Africa and into the Middle East. By the time you get up to where you've turned, hopefully, the 17th chapter of Acts, it's situated in a larger section that begins in chapter 12, verse 25, that then it extends to chapter 16, verse 5. So that comes just before this section that we're getting into. See, I'm just trying to give you some context here. And this section from 1225 to 165 records the spread of the Jewish church into Asia. So we've seen, the, we've seen them spread into Africa, we've seen them spread into the Middle East, and now we see them spreading into Asia from chapter 12 into chapter 16. And then around chapter 16, verse 6, we begin another section that goes from 16.6 all the way to 19.20. And hence, you're in 17, so I'm giving you this context so you see how everything's fitting together. And in this section from 16.6 to 19.20, we see the faith of the Jewish Messiah, Jesus, expanding into Europe. Now, it is worth pausing on what I've just surveyed, namely that the church of Jesus was in Africa, the Middle East, and Asia before it was in Europe. I pause here to emphasize this point because critics of Christian faith today in our culture, in North America in particular, will say things like Christianity is the European white man's religion and nothing could be further from the truth. Here you have a historical document from 2,000 years ago that records the history of this. You have Christianity in China before it gets in Ireland. You have Christianity in Africa, in the Middle East. In fact, the first state churches, as a matter of historical fact, start popping up in Africa. Uh, the Christian faith is indigenous to Africa, to Asia, uh, to the Middle East. And so, so to the critics, uh, you know, uh, you've you got to learn your history, honestly. Turn off the YouTube, pick up a book. Uh, that's just the historical fact. Uh, so you've got some context here, all right? This is a historical origins account of the church. The church is spreading, and in this section that we've gotten to, it is, the gospel is moving from Middle East, Africa, Asia, now into Europe, okay? Now, now as you have your Bibles open to Acts 17, we're going to get into the text in just a moment, but for now I want to give you some context 
uh, for the topic this morning that we are going to explore in our study of God's Word. Uh, So let me introduce today's topic. With the ongoing war in Gaza, uh, following October 7th, the Hamas terrorist attacks that slaughtered around 1,200 lives, mostly civilians, and took over 240 hostages, there is a lot of talk, not to mention heated debate, in the world around the nation of Israel. Last Sunday, we had a guest speaker, Dr. Tuvia Zaretsky, who's a Messianic Jewish scholar, who shared a message with us on why Israel still matters. It was a timely message, but not because of what happened on October the 7th, uh, nor because of what is happening still today as the war continues. Rather, it was a timely message because of the importance of biblical Israel in the ancient scripture, and uh, given, it's timely, given popular misreadings today in countless churches who mistakenly think that the church of the New Testament has replaced the Israel of the Old Testament and hence no longer matters. All of that said, my heart breaks for the suffering that is going on in Gaza. My, my heart breaks uh, for Jewish families that have their loved ones still hostage. My heart breaks for the church, for Christians in Gaza and Israel and Egypt and Jordan and Syria and Lebanon as you think of the, the, the stakes for believers in those places as they bear witness for the gospel of Jesus Christ. My heart breaks for this. Uh, but as we reflect on last Sunday, and I build upon it in today's message, uh, by way of introduction, we need to make a careful delineation with regard to our modern politics and what we see inside of Scripture as it relates to the topic of Israel. The popular misreading, though, that makes these, um, the message from last week and the one I'll offer today timely Uh, It it relates not to modern politics, but to modern replacement theology, or more technically what has been, what is called supersessionism. Though its adherents like to refer to themselves as so-called fulfillment theology, ironically, this misreading actually makes the promises of God to biblical Israel unfulfilled, so it's strange that they call themselves fulfillment uh, theologians, and dangerously it implicates God as a promise breaker, who has given up on a people and passed his promises to another people. In his message last Sunday, Dr. Tuvia Zaretsky uh, carefully combed the canon of Scripture to show the binding nature of God's promises to biblical Israel. As well, he was careful to delineate biblical Israel from the current nation-state of Israel, which, if it is not done rightly, can lead Christians into blind political allegiances that warrant scrutiny. While there is overlap among the two, to be sure, and that there are descendants of Abraham living in the nation-state of Israel today, the biblical Israel of prophecy yet to be fulfilled envisions a believing remnant of Jewish people in the land worshiping Jesus, the Messiah. Now, mind you, it it, it is not that these uh, prophesied Jewish people convert to Christianity as though Christianity were some other religion. Rather, it's it's that they see that the Christian faith is genuinely Jewish faith. Dr. Zaretsky shared with us about how how he experienced this when he came to repentance and faith in Christ. It created problems for him as as a Jewish man raised in a Jewish home uh, with all the Jewish uh, faith and culture and the rest. It created problems as... Many erroneously would believe that for him as a Jewish man to follow Jesus is somehow to apostatize and turn one's back on their people like a spiritual sort of an Uncle Tom that sold out to find favor among his own oppressors. On the contrary, for a Jewish man to follow the Jewish Messiah, it's actually very much a Jewish thing. When you think about it, the real shocking thing 
though our culture doesn't see it this way, is actually when a non-Jewish person decides to follow the Jewish Messiah. Uh, This is why the book of Acts was such a page-turner 2,000 years ago when it was written, because it records this history of all these non-Jewish people, people in Asia, people in Africa, people in the Middle East, uh, you know, all, all, all these people, people in Europe, Europeans coming to the Jewish Messiah. And so, so the book of Acts is a page-turner historically because the real shocker was that the Jewish Messiah and his Jewish disciples turned into his Jewish apostles and all of the early Jewish followers welcomed, get this, non-Jews into their churches and proclaimed to them that their Messiah was their Savior. Uh, if you know anything about the first century context in terms of the Roman Empire and the oppression uh, that Jewish people faced living in those times, Uh, They were under the boot of Rome. Rome is constantly on their backs. And they've gone through, you know, know, just hundreds of years of of occupying powers, you know, oppressing them and what have you, and and steps into this history, Jesus, and this thing called a church is born, and and it's a Jewish movement in its inception, and and you have these people who've who've been oppressed who, who then are preaching their hearts out to their oppressors, and their lives are being changed and they're becoming family together. In today's message, I want to talk about the nations. Uh, Last week, we explored why Israel still matters, and this week, I want to explore why uh, the non-Jews, the nations, matter. Dr. Zaretsky helped us understand why Israel still matters last week, and today I want to riff on that teaching by talking about why the nations matter. Notice I did not include in my title the word still, That was intentional on my part. You see, there are no misreadings in the church that say the nations don't matter, so there is no need to say still. Whereas given the popularity of replacement theology, we need to say that Israel still matters. God is not done with the ethnic biblical Israelites, which is very clear in Scripture, as we saw last week. Or if you, uh, you know, just want to sit down and read Romans 9 through 11, you see that very loud and clear. Not to mention if you read the Hebrew prophets or the book of Revelation, let alone the unconditionality of the promise that God made to Abraham's uh, biological descendants that one day they would be in the land worshiping the true and living God and that they would be used by God to heal the nations, uh, bring salvation to the ends of the earth, and ultimately recreate the earth uh, free from the stains of sin. In Acts 17, we see the spreading of the gospel in the trajectory of the ends of the earth. Look at the opening verse, 17, verse 1. Now, when they traveled through Amphipolis, Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica. So so the message is spreading now into Europe. In the following verses, we read about the Jewish apostle reasoning. In verse 2, you see he's reasoning. In verse 3, you see him explaining and giving evidence for Jesus, which leads, verse 4, to a number of non-Jews becoming persuaded to join the Jewish church. Then in verse 10 of chapter 17, we see Paul and some of his churchmen head to Berea, spreading further, spreading further into Europe. And again, he speaks, uh, Luke does, the historian, of the evidence of the gospel being brought to the people. Uh, Again, you know, the the church has always been, you know, this biblical movement, as I said in the beginning of this message, we're unashamedly a biblical people. We don't check our brains at the door, we put our thinking caps on. When you're looking at the text, that's exactly what they're doing. They're explaining, they're giving evidence, they're persuading. uh, They're they're engaging minds with data. In in verse 15, we see the message is spreading into Athens. So again, it's this European spread. 
And in verse 17, we see Paul once again reasoning with the people, and he draws a crowd, and he starts preaching his heart out. And in his sermon, Paul answers in passing our question for today's sermon, why do the nations matter? Why? Uh, first on your outline, because the nations are ordained by God. Look at chapter 17 and draw your eyes into the text at, at verse 24 there in the text. Verse 24 in the text. The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with human hands. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and boundaries for their habitation. Let's stop right there. Notice that it is God who has determined the boundaries of the nations. God decided the lines and the times. How long a given nation or an empire would last in a place. The lines and the times. In verse 18, Luke the historian notes that there were Epicurean and Stoic philosophers in the crowd. Do you see that? Paul was a scholar not just of the Jewish scriptures and of Jesus, but of secular thinkers, philosophy, science, and the arts. Paul speaks scientifically of God creating the cosmos, and then he takes jabs at the Stoics and the Epicureans whose worldview was fatalistic. He notes that human history is not fatalistic. Rather, it is in the hands of God. Mind you, not just any old generic God, specifically the triune God who is revealed in Christ. The God who eternally dwells as Father, Son, and Spirit. And that Son who was sent to become a man and die at the hands of men in the place of men as a sacrifice and a substitute for sinners. Luke tells us in verse 19 that Paul was preaching this message in the Areopagus, or, or what we also refer to as Mars Hill. This is a very public place that brought together uh, the intelligentsia of the day who would debate religion, scientific, uh, science, politics, and, and more. The place, uh, the Areopagus, was marked by various idols to the gods of their culture. It's a polytheistic culture. They got gods around every corner, tons of gods, tons of gods. Another thing that was quite radical about uh, the Jewish faith is this assertion that there is only one God. Uh, that, that made them highly unpopular, politically incorrect, to assert that there's only one God. And so, so Paul is there giving evidence, persuading at the Areopagus, and he notes all of these altars. And draw your eyes at verse 23, where you see the various altars of the culture. And in 23, verse 23, what do you see Paul doing? Paul uses an altar that was inscribed to an unknown God. These polytheists are like, hey, in case we missed a God, let's make an altar to the unknown God, right? And uh, so Paul goes, hey, look at that one right there, the unknown God. I'm going to tell you who the unknown God is. All these other statues represent false gods. I'm going to tell you who the true God is. I'm going to make known what is unknown to you. Not just any old God, but the true God. Verse 22, Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and he said, Men in Athens, I, deserve, I, I observe that you guys are very religious. Or as people say today, I'm not religious, I'm spiritual. <laughs> Whatever the distinction there is. I'm, I'm spiritual. Okay, fine, you're spiritual. In all respects, verse 22. Verse 23, for while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I found an altar with the inscription to the unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, I'm about to drop it like it's hot. I'm going to proclaim this to you, he says. Paul is proclaiming the God of Israel revealed in Jesus to crowds of non-Jewish people. In verse 26, he tells them that the God of Israel is the God of the nations. You see that? Paul reasons with them and he calls them to repentance 
And then in verse 34, we see that some respond. The proof was not only in the message that Paul preached and its evidence, it was in the lives of these non-Jewish Europeans that God was saving by His graces. God not only has planned the lines and the times of the nations, but He has also planned the salvation of the nations. Let me say something about the word nations before we get any further into the message. I need to define this word for you, so if you draw your eyes up here, you will see. There are three key words in the ancient texts of Scripture. We have this Hebrew word goyim, we have this Hebrew word amim, and then in the New Testament, written in Greek, we have this word ethne, which is where we get our term like ethnicity from. So different ethnic groups, okay? Goyim, this is a word that is also used for Gentiles. If you see the word Gentile, they are the Goyim, which basically just means you're, you're not Jewish. Uh, the nations are these other ethnic groups, these Goyim, these Gentiles, that aren't us. Now, speaking of the biblical world, for the, um, for the most part, the words nation in, invoked not so much a positive response as it did a negative one. Because the nations, the Goyim, the, the ethne were hostile to Jewish people at this time. They, they were hostile to them. They were hostile to their belief in only one God. They were hostile to their ideas about sin and holiness and the rest. This hostility brings us to the next point on your outline. We move from the meaning of the nations, point two, to the menace of the nations. Uh, the nations inside of Scripture are those who rebel against God. Uh, so Acts 17.24 speaks of God creating. Okay, so this means that Paul has in mind the book of Genesis. Let's mentally, let's keep our Bibles open to Acts, but mentally go back to the book of Genesis. What happens in the opening chapters of Genesis? God creates. That's chapters 1 and 2. What happens in chapter 3? People rebel against their creator. They reject his love, they reject his way, and everything becomes a mess. That's chapter 3. Paradise is lost. Humanity is exiled from Eden. That's chapter 3. Chapter 4, what happens? Cain kills Abel. There's blood on the ground. Everything's getting really messy. Then in chapter 5, we have the line of Seth, this genealogy, uh, which is the beginning of a separation of a chosen people from the nations. God is starting to form a, a, a distinct ethne, a distinct group, that he's going to use as a part of the plan of bringing all of us back, all ethnic groups, to paradise lost. That's chapter 5. The distinct group begins to form. Chapter uh, 6 through 9, we have the flood. Humanity is just going nuts, and God disciplines humanity. And then on the heels of that, you have this genealogy, the line of Seth. Okay, So, so, so you've got chapter 10, the line of Seth, and it traces through Noah, later to Abraham in Genesis 11. And what comes there, Genesis chapter 10, it's commonly known as the table of the nations. We have Noah's sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, traced. 26 of the 70 descendants from Shem, uh, 30 from Ham, 14 from Japheth. And, and then you, you, you see this, this, this line, okay? And then you go in, into the next chapter, and what do you have? And then you've, you've got this story of Babel. You've got this story of Babel. So Genesis chapter 10, verse 32, sums up the chapter succinctly. I'll put it in front of you here. You see, these are the families of the sons of Noah, the genealogies, by their nations, the forming of nations. And then in the next chapter, Genesis 11, we have the infamous history of the wicked tower of Babel, where the nations rebel against God, just like in Genesis 3, where the first humans rebel against God. There's something 
in the DNA of fallen humanity that just leads us into rebellion. And there's something in fallen humanity as the nations are forming where the nations are raging against the Creator. In Genesis 9, God told humanity to multiply and fill the earth, much like Adam and Eve were commanded. And just like Adam and Eve, instead of doing what they're told, they rebel. Rather than spreading out, they stay. Rather than obeying and loving God and making God's name great in worship, they choose to make a name for themselves and try to build a city like a sanctuary that would go up into the heavens, the Tower of Babel. God punishes them by confusing their languages and scattering them around the earth. Genesis chapter 11, I'll put it in front of you, verse 8 and 9. So the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of the whole earth, and they stopped building the city. Therefore, it's called Babel, because their languages are confused. They're babbling. He confuses the languages of the earth, and the Lord scatters them abroad over the face of the whole earth. So the nations then are born here in the Genesis account in rebellion. And they're scattered as a just punishment for their rebellion. The prophet Isaiah, when he spoke of the nations, the goyim, he describes them with this scattering kind of language that you have on your outlines. Ends of the earth, distant, far lands, islands. So we see that God scatters them. And we're in Acts 17. And Paul's talking about this scattering. And he talks about God drawing lines. And God's intentionally moving these nations around for a purpose that he's working out. In Proverbs chapter 16, verse 4, we read that the Lord has made everything for its own purpose, even the wicked for the day of evil. God uses all things. There's not a renegade molecule in the universe. God is in control of all things. And the nations serve a purpose in God's plan to redeem the fallen earth. Regarding this plan, it begins with a promise. That moves us to number three. We've seen the meaning of the nations, the menace of the nations, and now we see God picking a nation for himself, mine. God elects this nation, Israel. We read about this, uh, again, in the book of Genesis. God elects a people for himself, and I'll, I'll survey that in just a moment. Uh, they become biblical Israel. In Zechariah chapter 2, verse 8, we read of God's love for his people. He calls the nation the apple of his eye. In Deuteronomy 4, 6, and 7, God explains how he intended to use the nation to be a light for himself so that through this people, the other nations would see the Lord's nearness to them. In Isaiah 49, we read a prophecy about God and how he was going to display my splendor. Isaiah 49.3, through Israel as his own servant. In Isaiah 49.6, we, we read this. I'll put it in front of you. It is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also make you, look at that, a light to the nations so that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Now, we're going to revisit this verse later in the message, but for now, we see God's purposes in electing Israel stretch beyond Israel herself. And his intention was to use Israel to be a light to the nations. Uh, we see this inside of the Hebrew Scriptures. They were to be a royal priesthood to the nations. What do priests do? They mediate. They mediate, and they call humanity, hey, get right with God. Now, that said, this all begins in Genesis. As the cosmology of the origins, Genesis, uh, the opening that I've already surveyed, it then is going to take us to the story of Abram. The story of Israel begins with God taking a man named Abram from the scattered nations. Specifically, he comes from pagan Ur of Chaldees. As Dr. Zaretsky noted last week, the father of the Jewish people himself was not Jewish. He's from Ur of Chaldees. And then through his progeny, God makes them into a distinct people. God saves him by grace. Uh, Abram's a pagan from Ur of Chaldees. He's not a godly or righteous man. God saves him. 
God gives him a promise. This promise was unconditional as it entailed three specific things that Abram would be given. A land, a seed, a blessing. A land, a seed, a blessing. I'm going to have some crowd participation because I'm feeling lonely. So I'm going to do the whole say it after me, land, seed, blessing. One, two, three. Land, seed, blessing. Because I like alliterations, I call this a place, a progeny, and prosperity. Land, seed, blessing. The covenant is recorded in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. And then in chapter 13, verse 15, it is said to be binding forever. Five times in chapter 12, God says, I will, I will, I will, I will, I will. Uh, sounds like God's going to do this. Yeah, yeah. I will, I will, I will, I will, I will. It shows the foreverness of the promise that God will make good on. And then in chapter 15, there is a ceremony where God performs... Uh, displaying a, a ceremony of, which shows the unconditionality of his promise. In Genesis 17:5, God changed Abram's name to Abraham, Abraham meaning a father of a multitude, and hence we refer to this promise as the what? The Abrahamic covenant, land, seed, blessing. As the story continues, Abraham's seed arrives. His family grows and prospers on their way to the promised land, uh, by the end of the book of Genesis. And then you get into the book of Exodus and the nation enslaves them. God liberates them and he calls the prophet Moses to lead an underground railroad to get the people out. God gives the abolitionist prophet Moses commandments, mitzvot, to the people and the commandments are intended to make them into a distinct nation on their way to the land. The commandments weren't just about being spiritual. The commandments were also to give them a national identity. These were civil ordinances for them as a nation. In Deuteronomy 30, the prophet Moses speaks of the covenant of the land, which is also referred to as the Palestinian covenant, um, uh, or just better, land covenant, so that it's not politicized. It's so funny, when you're talking about Bible stuff, because of contemporary politics, people can't disconnect the two. So we, we, we see in Deuteronomy 30, flowing from the land seed blessing in Deuteronomy 30, there's a reiteration that you are going to receive the land. The Bible is really serious about the people and the progeny and the place. As a result of this, uh, you know, in terms of what I sh shared in the beginning and Dr. Zaretsky did last week of the dangers of replacement theology, what they do is they allegorize this. Rather than being a literal land, it, you know, they allegorize it. Rather than having a literal progeny, they allegorize this. Uh, this is what a, a lot of bootleg uh, preachers will do. Uh, you know, prayer of Jabez, expand your territories. You know, no, that was dealing with, like, literal borders in Israel. It wasn't dealing with getting a promotion at work. Or, you know, Jeremiah 29, 11. You've seen the coffee mugs and uh, the bumper stickers. I know I have plans for you, Jeremiah 29, 11. Plans for you to prosper. Plans to give you a hope and a future. You're like, yeah, but what's the context of the verse? I mean, I like being told God has plans for me and all that mushy stuff, but what's the context of the passage that was dealing with the people of Israel in a very literal way? We don't want to personalize, allegorize, or colonize the, the text and, you know, say th this that applied to this ethnic group in this specific place and say, oh, that's mine. Like, like you're, that's a colonizer hermeneutic. Let the text speak in its own context. Once in the land, the nation of Israel begins to take structure. And through a series of events that you can read about in the book of Judges and in the prophet Samuel, they become a monarchy. And then God picks a king for the people, the king David, and God promises to him, the king, who's of the seed of Abraham, he tells him that his seed 
will have one who will sit on his throne, the throne of David, and rule the people of Israel forever and usher in a, a paradise restored. So you have these reiterations as you're following the storyline in, in the Hebrew Bible. Land, seed, there's going to be one who sits on the throne of David. So then what about the third element of blessing? Well, the prophet Jeremiah prophesied of a new covenant. We studied this for Vespers last Sunday evening. And this blessing would flow out of the land of Israel and into the world. The promise came to Israel during a very dark hour in Jeremiah when the nations had ruined them and when their people were cold and complacent. Speaking of the nations and moral uh, uh, being complacent and compromising, this brings us to the next point which deals with God's purposes in using the nations to discipline his people. We've uh, talked about the meaning of the nations, the menace, the mine, the nation of Israel belonging to God, and now the mania, the, the nation's rage against God's selection of this people. On the outline, you have examples of God using the nations in the, in the parentheses there. Um, and, and you see how God uses this conflict with the nations to prepare and purify his people. Uh, notice Acts is, is listed in the parentheses there. And I'm gonna, I hope you still have your Bibles open to Acts. And please turn from the 17th chapter over to the 4th chapter in the book of Acts. And while you are turning to Acts chapter 4, while you turn there, let me survey some of the examples that are on your outline. You have Genesis 14, a uh, reference there in which Abraham and his crew were captured by a coalition of city-state kings in the Dead Sea Valley. The nations are raging against Abram. In Genesis 34, there's a war with Abraham's seed and the people of Sheshem. In Exodus, of course, right, uh, they are oppressed, they are enslaved. After their liberation, the Jewish people are in conflict with the Melekites. You have a reference there to Exodus 17:14. Thereafter, Israel struggles with losing its ethnic and spiritual identity through the influence of the nations. In Numbers 13 through 14, we see the nation of Canaan in struggle, which continues through Joshua Judges and beyond in 1 Kings 11 or 2 Chronicles 33, where God's people start adopting other pagan practices from the other nations. Now, let's look, let's look at Acts uh, chapter 4. Okay, what's, what's going on here in, in Acts chapter 4? We see, we see the ministry of the word is, is going forth. Peter and John are preaching their little hearts out. Revivals are breaking out in the Jewish community. They get persecuted. They get arrested in chapter 4. And, 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 then, and then they get out. They get out of lockup, right? And, and they come to their, to, to their homies there in verse 24. And they start sharing, they start sharing with them everything that's going on. And when their homies hear about this in 24, Acts 4, 24, when they heard this, they lifted their voices to God with one accord and they said, O oh Lord, it is you who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. That is a quote from Psalm 146, 6, in which the psalmist contrasts the inability of the princes of the nations to save anyone, juxtaposed the creator who made the earth and reigns from Zion. Look at verse 24. Uh, who by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said, Why do the Gentiles rage and the peoples devise futile things? This is a quote from Psalm 2, verses 1 and 2. And in this psalm we see God in the heavens is judge over the nations, looking at their futility as they rage against him and his people. Verse 26, continuing, Acts 4, 26. The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. In the Hebrew of Psalm 2.2, it actually, uh, that is being quoted here, it says, against his anointed one. Peter connects the prophecy of the anointed one from Psalm 2.2 to the Christ, who, who will come to Israel, and the nations will rage against him in the last days. Verse 26, 
For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the nations, the Gentiles, and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. Notice the manic raging of the nations. And notice that it doesn't catch God off guard. In fact, he ordained it for his purposes. And he's using it to accomplish his plans as he does. We see God not only using the nations, but saving them. Which brings us to the next point, his mercies. Uh, what I hope you're seeing, okay, not just like history and whatever, I, what I hope you're seeing personally as you're sitting and you're listening to the word of God. And no doubt you've, you've gone through the week unscathed, right? You've, you've sinned, you've made mistakes, you've, you've done stuff this last week, okay? Yeah, 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 or it's just me, okay. I'm, I'm alone up here, all right, you guys are holy. Well, maybe I'll sit down, you guys come up here, okay? You go through the week, you sin, you make mistakes, you say things you shouldn't have said or whatever. You, you do stuff. And, and you, you know, God's always drawing us in repentance and faith, and he's gracious to reveal that to us. No doubt you've gone through the week, not only sin, you've carried anxieties. You're, you're worried about things that you can't even control. You're worried about tomorrow, you're worried about this person, you're worried about what they think about you, you're worried about... you got anxieties. Um, you, you know, or, or like me, I'm, si I'm sick, and so then when I get sick, I get anxious, and I'm like, oh, what's, you know, what's wrong with me? Uh, get all hypochondriac and go on WebMD and think I have like five different cancers or whatever. And, you know, and you're all anxious or whatever, you're depressed or whatever. Now pause. Apply what you're hearing taught to you from the Word of God. God's in control of everything. Right? He's in control of everything. All these nations, all this history, all this, He's in control of it all. And He's orchestrating it into His purposes. So, so I don't have to, I mean, in, in the grand scheme of things, tomorrow is nothing compared to the puppeteering of a providential God to bring all of these nations into this plan of redemption that he's working out because of his mercy. So in the face of my sin from the week, I just go, man, look at this God. Look at his mercy on the nations. Of course he's merciful to me. In the Mosaic Law, we see God commanded kindness to the people of Israel. He told the people of Israel, you will have kindness on foreign nations. Leviticus 19, Deuteronomy 10. God told his people to be kind to the nations. Moses himself, according to the book of Numbers, in chapter 12, verse 1, Moses had a Cushite wife, uh, an African, a black woman, married Moses, right? This is the original jungle fe fever, interracial marriage, Moses, right? The Jewish people weren't meant to be like, oh, we hate everyone. The law commanded them to give mercy to the nations. The law extended common grace to the nations, and in God's saving graces, we see him doing more than the common. We see him saving Gentiles. On your outline, we see him bringing repentance. Turn your Bibles from Acts 4 over to Acts 9. We see God in Acts 9 saving Gentiles. While you turn there, I would be remiss not to mention some cross-references that you have on your outline. The greatest example of God bringing Gentiles repentance is the book of Jonah. Remember the book of Jonah? Jonah, the Jewish prophet, sent to Assyria, the capital of, uh, of Assyria nonetheless, Nineveh. He goes right in the middle there and God says, I want you to go and preach my message to, to, to your oppressors, to your enemies. I want you to go and preach my message to them. Jonah's not too keen about that. 
Because he knows that God is merciful, so he goes the other way. God humbles him and brings him there. Jonah preaches a very short message, and the city is brought to its knees in repentance and worship. And the book ends with Jonah not being happy about this because of the oppression of the Jewish people from the nations raging against them. And God uses that to say, we, we are to be a compassionate, merciful people. We forgive our enemies. It, after all, all sin is an offense against God. And so if God is going to extend forgiveness to someone else, who are we to hold on to it? The Apostle Paul is sort of a New Testament Jonah. Uh, he was a nationalist. He, he hated the Goyim, the Gentiles. He was particularly worried about the early Jewish Jesus movement because he, he thought that it was possibly some sort of a, uh, you know, like a Roman plot to, you know, uh, divide the people or whatever. You know, he's very suspicious of it. He persecuted the church. And then God grabs a hold of him, saves him, pulls a Jonah on him, drags him down and, and says, hey, you're going to be my mouthpiece to the nations. You're going to be the New Testament Jonah. Acts chapter 9, draw your eyes at verse 13. God uses Ananias as a part of drawing Paul to become a, a prophet to the Goyim. Ananias says in verse 13 of Acts 9, Lord, I have heard about this man, how much harm he did to your saints in Jerusalem, and here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. So, Lord, he's not a good guy. What are you doing, Lord? Why do you want him... He's not a good guy, Lord. Sort of funny when you're praying as though you're informing God, you know. Like, didn't you know? You're like, uh, you're talking to God. Uh, I think he knows. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles, the nations, the Goyim, the ethnic, and the kings and the sons of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. God raises up Paul to save the Gentiles. Turn from Acts 9 over to Acts 13. And while you're turning to Acts chapter 13, listen to how Paul describes his calling. I'll put it up here so you can keep turning in Ephesians chapter 3. Paul's describing his calling and he says, To me, the very least of the saints, this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ and to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery for which ages has been hidden in God who created all things. I've been called to the Goyim to preach the unfathomable riches of Christ. Acts chapter 13, Acts chapter 13, draw your eyes at verse 46. Now, now Paul's underway. He's become this preacher to the Goyim. In verse 46, Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly. And they said it was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first, since you repudiate it and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles, the nations, the Goyim. For so the Lord has commanded us, I have placed you as a light to the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many has been appointed to eternal life, believed. And the word of the Lord was spread through the whole region. God was electing Gentiles. And then he's sending these preachers to go and proclaim and he's calling them to himself. Verse 47 is a quote from Isaiah 49, which we looked at earlier, and I'm going to put in front of you a little bit later in the message. But it shows that they were seeing this as prophecy. This is Isaiah stuff, you guys. So, so we, we see the Lord, uh, point, four on, on mercy, uh, point five on mercy, we see him bringing them in repentance. Further, we see him speaking of prophecy, prophesying their inclusion. 
So here you have in front of you in Acts 13, prophecy saying, the prophet said this was going to happen. The prophecies in the Hebrew Bible talk much of the Gentiles being saved. Let me put some in front of you for sake of time here. You've got Psalm 22, in which the nations come and worship the God of Israel. In Psalm 47, we see God pictured as king of the earth over the nations. The psalmist calls all the families of the earth to worship the God of Israel in Psalm 96. Isaiah, in 56, uh, verses uh, 6 through 7, envisions foreigners coming to worship Israel's God and says, I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in the house of prayer. Burnt offerings and sacrifices will be acceptable on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all peoples. And later in chapter 66, verse 18, the prophet speaks of, quote, the time is coming to gather all the nations and tongues, and they shall come and they will see my glory. And he goes on in verses 19 through 22, it's in front of you, to describe the nations, the distant coastlands, who are coming to Jerusalem to worship. This, this, this fits, this is the prophecy here of, of new heavens, new earth, and Christ one day coming. Speaking of Christ, he displays God's mercy to the nations. The next subpoint there on your outline, you see... God bringing Gentiles repentance, prophesying their inclusion. And then God the Father sends God the Son to become a man in Jewish flesh and minister to those who are not of Jewish flesh. The story of Israel climaxes with the coming of the Christ. The prophecies of the Hebrew Bible are pointing to the Messiah. And when he comes, he turns out not just to be a mere man of history, but he's also God the Son from all eternity. And the birth narratives of, of, of the Messiah are filled with prophecies being fulfilled. Matthew's gospel opens with the seed of Abraham and the seed of David, the covenants. Matthew documents the messianic pedigree of the Messiah, giving his Jewish genealogy, which includes four Gentile women. Three of them are clearly Gentile women. Uh, the last of the four has significant Gentile associations. The last. We have Tamar in Matthew 1.3, the Canaanite. We have Rahab, the pagan from Jericho in Matthew 1.5. We have Ruth, the Moabite in Matthew 1.5. And then you have a mention of Uriah the Gentile's uh, widow, Bathsheba, in 1.6, who may have been a Gentile, or at least she was married to one. New Testament scholar Dr. Craig Keener writes, and I quote, One purpose of Jewish genealogies was to highlight the purity of one's Israelite ancestry. Why then does Matthew deliberately emphasize Gentiles in Jesus' ancestry? Matthew wants us to see that God's plan was for all peoples all along, end quote. Well said, Dr. Keener. In Matthew 2, we see Jesus lives in a foreign nation in Egypt uh, for years of his childhood. In fact, in Matthew 2.15, it ties it to the prophecy of Hosea, out of Egypt I called my son. When Jesus begins his ministry, we see him including uh, ministry to Gentiles in Matthew chapter 4, verses 12 through 17. We read of his ministry in, Ga in the Galilee of the Gentiles, which Matthew, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says is the fulfillment of Isaiah 9. Now, earlier I showed you Isaiah 49, which speaks of a time of blessing for Israel, for God's servant, who will be a light to the nations. Here, let me show you that verse again. Look up here. Look at this. Isaiah has a number of these servant prophecies. And concerning this one, Isaiah 49, 6, there is an individual, you see, who's called the servant of the Lord, okay, and he is sent to restore Israel. You see that? So the servant is not Israel because this servant restores Israel. Granted, sometimes in Isaiah there is a servant figure who is the nation of Israel. But in this case, the servant is going to restore Israel. The servant is called my servant and is paralleled with what? My salvation. He is said to be a light to the Gentiles. 
Nowhere in the Hebrew Bible was this fulfilled. However, in the Jewish New Testament, it comes to pass. The Gospel of Luke reveals the identity of the servant in reference to the Isaiah passage. Let me put this in front of you. Keep, keep your Bibles open in Acts, but look at this. Luke chapter 2. There was a man from Jerusalem named Simeon. You remember this? He was a righteous man, devout, looking for what? The consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him, and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit to the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Christ to carry out for him the custom of the law, he took him in his arms, and he blessed God, and he said, look at verse 29, Now, Lord, you are releasing your bondservant to depart in peace according to your words, for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you prepared in the presence of all peoples. Verse 32, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. You see that? According to Simeon, under the influence of the Holy Spirit, and Luke, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit writing this, it is Jesus who is the light to the Gentiles prophesied in Isaiah. And notice that Simeon was waiting for the consolation of Israel. In the next chapter, Luke gives the genealogy of Jesus, and in chapter 4, he lifts up Jesus' first public sermon in which Jesus is rejected Preaching to a Jewish audience, he is rejected in his first sermon in Luke because he starts talking about how God blessed Gentiles. Zarephath in the land of Sidon and Naaman the Syrian, Luke chapter 4, 23 through 27. In Matthew's gospel, as Jesus starts his ministry, we see similar patterns with Gentile matters. In Matthew 4, 12 through 16, we read language like what we saw in Isaiah. Look at the text. Leaving Nazareth, he went up. He lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulon and Naphtali, to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah. Land of Zebulun, land of Naphtali, the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people living in darkness have seen a light on those living in the land of the shadow of death, and a light has dawned. Scholars note that Galilee, both in the time of Isaiah and the time of Christ, had a large, large Gentile population. Preaching there, Jesus was literally fulfilling the prophecy and bringing the light to the Gentiles. We see this continue throughout his ministry. Jesus ministered to Gentiles. For example, in Matthew chapter 8, Jesus com commended the faith of the centurion. And what did he say in Matthew 8, 9? That that Gentile's faith, he hadn't seen anyone in all of Israel that had faith like that. Later in the chapter, he's ministering in the pagan country of the Gadarenes. Um, in Luke 17, 12 through 19, we see Jesus healing the Samaritan, acknowledging uh, him as a foreigner who then returned to give glory to God. In John 4, he's ministering to the Samaritans. Many readers of the Bible know of this saying with Jesus, with the Canaanite woman. The Canaanite woman, recall she had a daughter who was demon-possessed, and she comes to Jesus, and she's like, can you help me, can you help me, please? And Jesus says, uh, I was sent to the lost, house, the lost sheep of the house of Israel. You go, dang, Jesus, that's cold. This lady needs your help. And he's like, no, I'm not going to do it. You're not Jewish. And then, then what does she do? She, she bows down before him, right? She bows down before him. And, and she says, you know, is it, is, it, is it not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs? Which is a wordplay because uh, as an ethnic slur to Gentiles, you call them dogs. And, and she, she goes on and she says, but even the dogs feed on the crumbs from which fall from the master's table. And then Jesus heals her kid. Jesus wasn't being like ethnocentric here. He was, he's making a point for everyone to see that, that yes, he is, the, he is the Messiah of Israel, but he's the savior of the nations. 
We read in John chapter 10, verse 16, Jesus says very loud and clear, I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will hear my voice, and they will become one flock with one shepherd. The sheep outside of the covenant, the Gentiles, I've come for them too. Throughout his ministry, we see Jesus reaching out to the nations. Even on his death, we have Simon of Cyrene, an African, an African, whose children, according to Mark 15, 21, have Roman names. You have an African carrying the cross. And after Jesus' death and resurrection, we see he assured the Gentile missions would continue. We've seen this with Paul in the book of Acts. Speaking of Paul, look at this quote from his letter to Rome. For I say that Christ has become a servant of the circumcision on behalf of the truth of God to confirm the promises given to the fathers and for the Gentiles to glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, therefore I will give praise to you among the Gentiles. I will sing of your name. Again, he says, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, he says, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples praise him. And Isaiah says, there shall come from the root of Jesse, and he who arises to rule the Gentiles in him, the Gentiles have hope. Notice in, in verse 9 here, Paul quotes from Psalm 18, which pictures David rejoicing in God, delivering him from the nations. Verse 10 here in front of you is a quote from Deuteronomy 32, in which Moses saw the Gentiles praising God with the people of Israel. Verse 11 quotes Psalm 117. Verse 12 quotes Isaiah 11.10. And both of those texts describe Gentiles praising the God of Israel. With these four quotes coming from the tripartite divisions of the Hebrew Bible, the Tanakh, you have Torah in verse 10, Navim in verse 12, Kethuvim in verse 9 and 11. It is as though Paul is saying, read the Bible. Read the Hebrew Bible. It is talking about how God has included the nations in his salvation. Which brings us to God's method. The nations are providentially used by God. Hopefully you still got Acts open. Draw your eyes at Acts chapter 1 while you're turning there. Cross-references on your outline, Luke 21, 24. Jesus speaks of the times of the Gentiles. He mentions that one day the times of the Gentiles will be fulfilled. In Romans eleven twenty five, 25, Paul speaks of the fullness of the Gentiles, which he ties to what's happening in Israel. In the book of Daniel, we have prophecies of Gentile nations that God uses for his plan of redemption. In Daniel 2, God communicates to the pagan Gentile king, Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, which the prophet Daniel discerns with a divine overview of world events in a millennia yet to come involving the nations. In Daniel 9, we have a prophecy of, of these events, the 77s of the Messiah who will come to Israel, who will be cut off. Jesus fulfilled this literally, and after being cut off, he continued his work through his church. Now, Acts chapter 1, this is where he's ultimately cut off when he ascends to heaven, and he gives his message to the church to carry. Draw your eyes at the text. The first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up to heaven, after he had, by the Holy Spirit, given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. To these he presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them for a period of 40 days and speaking of them the things concerning the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God, what's that? That's Israel. The kingdom that was to come, the promise, the land, the seed, the blessing, God's kingdom, Israel. So they're talking about the kingdom, right? They're standing with the king. They're talking about the kingdom. Gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said, you heard from me. John baptized with water. You will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. All right, that's cool. But what about the kingdom? What about the kingdom? What, what about the kingdom? 
So they came together, verse 6, and they're asking him, Lord, is it at this time that you're restoring the kingdom to Israel? Right? Like, the whole storyline is about the Messiah, a kingdom, world peace, land seed blessing, healing, paradise lost, comes back. When is that going to happen? Jesus said, verse 7, It is not for you to know the times or the epochs that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But back to what I was talking about. You'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and even to the remotest parts of the earth. Now is not time for the kingdom. Okay? The kingdom's going to come. That's a time, an epoch that has been fixed. That's going to happen. But right now, I need you to go to the nations. Tell them of my love. Tell them of my salvation. Tell them of the coming of the Spirit. And so then in the book of Acts, we see the Gentiles receiving the Spirit. In Acts chapter 2, the Jewish people receive the Spirit on their holy day of Pentecost. And we see as the Spirit is being poured out on the Jewish people, the reversal of the Tower of Babel is taking place. Recall how the nations formed. The lines, the times, the scatterings, as we saw in the book of Genesis. Luke records the miracle of the people no longer confused by their languages, but now understanding them. Luke lists languages from among the nations in Acts chapter 2. And then in Acts chapter 10, we have a unique Gentile Pentecost, making, making the church of Jesus Christ as the antithesis of Babel. See the juxtaposition. The church is the eschatological picture of what God is bringing and what he's accomplishing. I think of today. There's a, there's a game or something, right? Uh, you guys are like, yeah, hurry, wrap it up. I got, I got chicken wings and stuff, you know? so funny. When the game goes long, everyone's like, yeah. When the sermon goes long, they're like, wrap it up. Okay, but uh, there's a game, right? Uh, this game, I was doing a little research. There's over 130 countries who typically watch the game. The game is televised in over 30 languages. You know, that little game, right, like this game can draw the nations to itself. And with the Swifties, it's going to be even more intense, right? Uh, I heard a comedian joke that to satisfy the, the Swifties, the, refer, the referees are going to now take uh, you know, penalties from uh, 10 games ago. Uh, was supposed to be a joke there. But anyway, uh, one little thing that draws the nations to see it. Right? This, that's what the church is supposed to be. Like the, the, the thing that is drawing the nations to see. And then the Messiah comes, right? And he fulfills all of those promises in this. And the whole plan is, 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 is accomplished. We are foretasting this with the pouring out of the Spirit. We get to see this as he grafts Gentiles into covenant. In Ephesians chapter 2, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ. You were excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope without God in the world. But now in Christ you formerly, who were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. He is our peace. He's brought down the dividing wall. In Romans 9 through 11, Paul gets all into that. He, he talks about the adoption of sons and the glory of the covenants. I'm speaking to you Gentiles. I'm, I'm the apostle to your people. He talks about them as, as being like wild branches that are being grafted into Israel. He uses this horticultural imagery of being grafted in. He also uses this potter, pottery imagery in Romans chapter 9 about how the potter does what he wishes and how he's using the Gentiles, and he ties it to a prophecy of Hosea, Romans 9, 21 through 26. 
It's very clear that God is in control and he's being gracious to graft Gentiles in. It's very clear in the text, further moving down your outline, that he's using unbelieving nations for discipling or disciplining his people. Look at, uh, look at Romans chapter 9 here. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it does not depend on the man who wills or on the man on runs, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this purpose I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you so that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. God raised up the Pharaoh. God raised up the Pharaoh to do his bidding. 2 Kings 18, 9 through 12, we see God raising up the kings of Assyria. We, we see this in, in Isaiah 45. Cyrus of Persia, the pagan ruler, is called God's Christ, his anointed one. God anointed Cyrus to do his work. The pagan king that God used, Cyrus, would lead the people of Israel back into the land after 70 years of captivity in fulfillment of 2 Chronicles 36, 22, and 23. Cyrus becomes a shepherd of the people. Truly, as we read in Proverbs 21, 1, the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. He directs it like a water course wherever he pleases. Speaking of a king, this brings us to the millennium. We left off in Acts chapter 1 with the talk about the, the kingdom, right? That is an epoch. That is fixed. That's going to happen. Jesus talked about this. Mark 13, Luke 21, Matthew 24 through 25, the Olivet Discourse, that he was going to come. He was going to judge the nations. He was going to restore Israel. Acts chapter 15, we don't have time, but in verses uh, 14 through 18, you, you, you see this. You see this reference to uh, Peter, and you've got the ex exchange with James, where he, he, he relates how God concerned himself with the Gentiles. And the words of the prophets agree. This is Acts 15, 16. After these things, I will return. I will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins. I will restore so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord. To all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from long ago. Uh, one day the Messiah will come. His kingdom will reign. According to the book of Revelation, it will last for a thousand years. According to the book of Romans, in chapter 11, 25 through 29, he's going to reestablish his people. He's going to make good. He's going to fulfill literally the land, the seed, and the blessing. One day, the nation of Israel will come to faith in the Messiah, as we read in the prophet Zechariah, chapter 12. After he comes, the covenantal blessings will flow. The Messiah will return. He will set up on his throne in literal fulfillment of the seed of David. He will be in the land in literal fulfillment of the land covenant. And he will bring prosperity to all the nations. Isaiah talks about the raging of the nations being brought to an end. In Romans 15, we've seen Paul praising God for the rejoicing of the Gentiles. Next point on your outline. After this period of millennium, the nations will be healed. They will glorify God. We have prophecies in the scripture of a new heavens and a new earth. The book of Revelation describes that day in detail. There will be an era of tribulation that will take place. We read of an angel during the tribulation who proclaims the gospel flying through the whole earth and calling on the earth to worship the Creator. The end comes in Revelation 19, 20, 21. And then the king brings the new heavens and the new earth. Revelation 21, I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth passed away. There is no longer any sea. I saw a holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. 
I heard a loud voice from the throne, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will no longer be any death, no longer any mourning, crying, or pain. The first things have passed away, and he who sits on the throne, behold, I am making all things new. I'm making all things new. This is the reverse. Paradise lost, Genesis. Man is exiled from Eden, from the presence of God. And now God brings back his presence to the earth, and he wipes away all their tears. We, we read, as you continue in the text of Revelation, the language of Eden. He shows me the river of the water of life. Hey, that was in Eden. Yeah, he brings it back. It's coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb. And in the middle of its street, on either side of the river, is what? The tree of life. Whoa, the tree of life? And what does the tree of life do, according to Revelation 22? What does it do? It heals the nations. The leaves of the trees were for the healing of the nations. The nations are healed. The Abrahamic covenant is fulfilled. The creation is new. So what do we do with all this? This is the last point on your outline. We go and make disciples. We saw in Acts 1, when they were like, hey, when's the kingdom popping off? He goes, hey, Holy Spirit, go be my witnesses, ends of the earth. That's what's popping off right now. The end of the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus standing with his disciples. Matthew 28. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all what? Nations. The word there is ethne. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the ends of the age. This age will come to an end. A new age will come, the kingdom of God. He will fulfill all of his promises. This gives us every incentive to be bold in our witness. Because evangelism and the saving of souls and the changing of lives isn't our work. It's God's work. He saves. He's on the move. He's, he's way ahead of us already doing stuff. And he's inviting us to step into the good works that he has prepared beforehand. Don't you want to be a part of that? Don't you want to be a part of something bigger, grander, epic? That's exactly what God has invited you into in salvation. He has made you a part of this crazy history that is unfolding that we surveyed today. So I hope that in this survey, you don't walk away today with a bunch of information. I hope you got some information, but I hope that you walk away today with transformation. That God, that God is merciful to you in your sin so you can run to him with it and find forgiveness. That God is meticulous in his providence, so your anxieties, your worries, you can run to him with those. If, he, if, he's, if he's in control of the nations, he's, he's in control of your Wednesday appointment, right? He's in control of it all. I hope this is encouraging to you. I hope this draws you in faith and repentance in him. Speaking of which, drawing, we are going to come to the communion table where we're going to partake of the pictures of what has been proclaimed, the gospel. You have bread, you have juice, symbols of his body and his blood that was broken for us. When he was there with his disciples in the upper room, he took these elements from the Passover and he said, as he holds the cup, this is the cup of the new covenant, right, in my blood. The church of Jesus Christ has inherited this covenant that was prophesied by Jeremiah to Israel. We're grafted into this, and we carry this message and this experience of the Holy Spirit and His presence working in our lives. 
And so this is a, a special time for us as the worship team leads us in song for us to sing, come to the communion table, reflect on God's providence and what He's doing in the nations. I, there's an election or a vote or something happening this year, right? As people start freaking out about that, you know, just be reminded God's in control of who the president's going to be. He's in control of the current president. He's in control of the governor. He's in, he's in control of it all. And he loves his church. We need not be worried. We have rest in him. Let us worship him, shall we? Father, we thank you for your love for us. Lord, we confess that we are guilty of focusing on our problems we go inside ourselves and spend far too much time in there thinking about ourselves. Lord, may we be found in you. Create in us a clean heart, O oh God. Give us a thirst for your word and a hunger for holiness. As we come to the table, Lord, I pray that you would supernaturally work in our hearts to bring to mind things to confess to bring to mind burdens to let go of, to bring to mind uh, promises that we've made that we need to keep. Lord, would you supernaturally do a work as we now respond to your word and come to the table? We join with the nations in rejoicing in you. We join with the saints of old in your covenant in praising you before the throne. Have your way with us as we continue in, in song and communion. In Christ's name, amen.